You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, we take some listener requests. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores issues of science, critical thinking, and secular humanism. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. And Ashlyn Noble. Hello. So today we are covering some topics uh, that our listeners have asked us to talk about. This show is going to be a bit of a grab bag of things we've been asked over the last little while, uh, or things that have come up briefly on the show in the past that we were asked to expand upon. So today, Laura, our resident dietitian, will be talking about trans fats. Lauren will be discussing password security. Ashlyn will be talking about an exciting form of health pseudoscience called Physiospect. And the one dude on the panel will be talking about the gender pay gap, because Jesus Christ, how did that happen? <laughs> we promise to mock him mercilessly. <laughs> but first, this episode marks LUEE's sixth anniversary. Yay! I can't believe we're doing this this long. <laughs> and none of us ever wanted to be involved in the first place. <laughs> I know. I think at most we were all like, oh, I'll be a part-time contributor occasionally, but I'm not running this thing. <laughs> That's still true for me. <laughs> Up top. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> hey, you edit it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have the least responsibility around here. Well, not in this house. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Jem does it, so I do the other stuff. No. So our first episode, uh, which was Halloween-themed for some reason, uh, was recorded all the way back in October 2011, uh, but it wasn't actually released until November. Something I think we knew at the time recorded it. It was like the Treehouse of Horror. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so why don't we take a moment to look back at the history of the show? You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. On today's show, Halloween Myths and the monsters we love to fear. Robert Schindler was involved with the Winnipeg Skeptics from pretty early on in the group's history, and he was the driving force behind uh, Life, the Universe, and Everything Else in its early days. He was LUEE's first executive producer, hosting most of the first uh, 20 episodes, I think. And if I recall correctly, Rochelle McCullough was doing most of the editing at that point. Ashlyn and I were involved from the get-go, but we were adamantly not in charge. I spent the weekend uh, in a 16th century Tudor gown. Uh, I played uh, Colonel Mustard. I did not have time to run a podcast, and I, I still don't. Uh, and Ashlyn was in the same boat, but we were both panelists on that first episode, which was hosted by Robert, and also featured Scott Carnegie, who listeners heard most recently uh, just last episode, when he struggled through Lauren's Healing Crystals quiz with the rest of us. And I wanted to apologize. I totally had an intro for him that said he used to be a podcast host, but I totally forgot to say it when he came up to do the panel with us. So, so sorry, Scott. Scott also gave us a great talk about Mormonism at Skepticamp back in September, which is available on our website. I'll link to it in the show notes. 
The third episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else tackled the common question, what's the harm in believing pseudoscience? Released in late November 2011, episode three marked Laura's first appearance on the show. In many cases, it prevents people from seeking uh, treatments that actually do work. And uh, Lauren's first guest spot on the panel wasn't until two years later, with episode 73 released in January 2014, when she joined Ashlyn, past host Donna Harris, and Pat Morrow in a discussion of the Humanist Association's participation in an interfaith panel. My greatest fear is Stephen Harper getting re-elected in 2015. Well, these episodes are all available on our website at lueepodcast.com. Because of the way our web host rolls our RSS feeds, these episodes have fallen off the bottom of our podcast feed in iTunes. But that's not a bug, that's a feature, trust me. When the show began, episodes were shorter and featured a rotating cast of hosts and panelists. And new episodes were released every two weeks. Theoretically a good format, but nobody ever wanted to be on the show. <laughs> Yeah, so we retooled, and what you might call the modern era of LUEE began about three years ago in September of 2015 with episode 88 when the show went monthly. That's like, if I open the door, am I going to be on Earth or Mars? <laughs> That's when we started recording in the same room again, which uh, really helped, I think, the show gel. Since then, episodes have been about twice as long and featured a mostly regular panel of Ashlyn, Laura, and myself, with a fourth seat that was typically filled by either Lauren or Ian James, our music director. Ha ha ha. There you go. Like Star Trek. When Ian left Winnipeg, Lauren claimed the seat as a permanent panelist. Not by choice. Under some duress. <laughs> <laughs> so that's... The abridged history of life, the universe, and everything else. You didn't even mention that weird period where we tried to go weekly by doing, uh, like, a weird news show. I, I cut that part out, but, uh, yeah, part. we did that. <laughs> uh, oh, boy, that was a lot of work. I'm proud of the show we put together and of how far the show has come. And thanks for all your hard work, everyone, and happy anniversary. Yay! Yay. Is there champagne? Did you bring champagne? So why don't we start the show proper with Ashlyn telling us all about the Physiospect. So the letter we got read as followed. Hello, fellow Winnipegger here. I just stumbled across your show and I have enjoyed the few episodes that I've listened to. I was wondering if you could do a segment on a machine called the Physiospect. My in-laws have a couple of these. They paid extra for the Physiospect 23. And although I am not really a science guy, my bullshit detector went off as soon as they showed it to me. They are convinced that these machines work, and they are actually diagnosing and treating people with them. My mother-in-law really wants to use it on my children, and while I'm pretty sure it's harmless, I don't want her woo anywhere near my kids. They asked my opinion when they first told me about it, and I said that it sounded like pseudoscience. They got all offended and said it was quantum physics and stuff that I just didn't understand. <laughs> Anyhow, I would be very interested to hear your take on the physiospect. Thanks for your time. I'll be listening. Josh. Hi, Josh. Hope you're still listening. <laughs> Uh, first of all, I know that Jem sent you a quick reply back when we first got this email, but thanks for your patience. It took us quite a while to address it on the show. Looking into this machine was an absolutely incredible experience, so also thank you for bringing it to our attention. <laughs> I started by checking out the website, and if I'm going to be honest, I didn't get a lot further than that, because it is just incredible. <laughs> uh, it is chock full of quotable quotes. <laughs> so a lot of my segment is just going to be me quoting their website verbatim, because there's no better way to sell you a product than that, right? She's been doing it all week at home. It's amazing. It's so funny. 
I wonder if it's been updated since I looked at it because that was uh, that was quite a while ago. It doesn't look like it. There's <laughs> <laughs> still scrolling text flashing. Yeah. It's bright blue with frames. Okay, so the physio spec claims to be, and I'm gonna help you out by using plain English here, which the website does not do. A device that can diagnose and treat literally everything wrong with you in every organ and body system and can even correct your DNA. What? <laughs> correct your DNA? How does that sound? So so it stops aging. Sure. I, it, I don't think they would deny that. Does it combine your DNA with frogs to make no. perfect dinosaurs? Clever girl. So the actual physiospect consists of a little box with a couple of blinky lights. Uh, it looks like it was probably a modem in a past life. <laughs> that got like a, a new cover. Uh, there's a set of headphones, uh, and there's a little device that looks like uh, almost like if they took a library book scanner, but they made it for children. Okay, an easy bake scanner, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> uh, so, how does it work? I'm gonna quote the website here. It works by sending an infrared triggering signal of extremely low intensity to the biofield around the brain via specially designed headphones. The principle... <laughs> I have barely gotten started, Jim. <laughs> I forgot how silly it was. The principle is based on the fact that every cell, tissue, and organ has its own unique frequency pattern that varies as it experiences a load or stress. The healthier the area being investigated, the more stable its frequency pattern is. We can direct the physiospect to investigate the unique frequency of, say, the tissue of the right lung, given that the biofields of both brain and lung tissue, as with all parts of the body, are in constant communication with each other. Whoa. So, the headphones send a signal to your brain, and your brain sends a signal back, which you can investigate for the particular frequency of the right lung. <laughs> okay. Okay. Okay, go on. You're with me so far? No. <laughs> Just pretend. <laughs> I, I got off the bus at the last station. <laughs> with an acute problem, one single therapy session is often all that is needed. With a chronic condition, it may require several sessions over a period of time. The device scans each organ or tissue on a cellular level. It compares the measurements to a database of thousands of reference diagnoses and conditions. Physiospec uses special headphones for the cell communication, and it uses special readers built into headphones to read the cell's own signals. Physiospec finds out how strained an organ is, if there is any diseases developing, how much the cells are influenced by a specific disease, and which microorganisms are in the area. Physiospec is the most important tool we have for analyzing an organ stress level and dysfunction. Oh, they never boy. once say how... Frequencies. Frequencies. Mm. Yeah. That's the very important word in pseudoscience. I know. <laughs> so, does anyone want to guess how it treats you once it's figured out which of your organs have dysfunctions? You're not allowed to guess, I already told you. Lower dose infrared? Interesting. Um, well, it's got headphones, so it's probably just going to like play some soothing music. Maybe binaural beats. <laughs> So again, quoting from the website. An effective correction can be made of the disturbed balance within the body by loading the organ frequencies into water, alcohol, or pills, or cream. Oh, shut up. 
<laughs> the remedies will work in the manner of a mora or bicom therapy, converting the disharmonies frequencies into harmonious frequencies. <laughs> so you just you put a cup full of some sort of carrier onto this machine and it will load it with the frequencies you need to make your body better and then you can consume that thing. However, if you don't have for some reason water or anything <laughs> else to put into this thing. Don't worry, it'll just download it directly into your body and it'll be fine. What? <laughs> that reminds me of uh, Jacques Benveniste who who uh, who patented the the method of uh, transferring homeopathic frequencies uh, over fax fax lines. <laughs> yes. and so he could fax you a homeopathic remedy yeah. that would like then then be inserted into your uh, your your water. <laughs> yeah. So, speaking of the frequencies of numerous homeopathic remedies stored in the computer can also be loaded into water, alcohol, pills, or cream. Mm-hmm. So, the fax machine required. Yeah. You don't need to go to the store anymore for homeopathy. You can just download that shit from your physiospect. <laughs> yeah, or from your tap. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so here's another few weird sentences. All of this is just one paragraph. Remedies not in the computer can be tested for their effectiveness. Virtual information <laughs> test of nutritional supplements. That's just a sentence in the middle of the- <laughs> for no reason. it's not even a sentence. I know. Sentence fragment. Sentence fragment is also a sentence fragment. There's nothing after it or before it, it react- like, goes with it in any way. Just virtual information tested nutritional supplements. So, I mean, maybe you can put your nutritional supplement on top of the box and it'll decide whether it's good for you? Who knows? Okay, so these therapy sessions and all of its talk about how it can cure everything that's wrong with you are kind of undercut by wording on other parts of the site, such as... <laughs> oh, is this le- legally required wording? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> but please be aware, the physiospect as such does not heal, nor does it claim to heal. <laughs> I beg uh, to differ. <laughs> that's not at all what it says. <laughs> the physiospect transfers the frequencies of a healthy organ to the client thereby stimulating the body's immune system to heal, which the body is programmed to do. There is nothing new about this concept. It has been around for eons, going back to the ancient acupuncture system, and more recently with the Tesla coils and Rife frequencies. With the advent of the modern computers, the Russian scientists were able to create a computer program to stimulate the healing process. And on the computer screen, the client can see this transformation happening. But the graph said I was better. (laughs) So it's not technically offering you any sort of medical advice or healing. It's just healing you. (laughs) You can watch it happening. Okay, so they have graphs all over this website. They even have like a little legend at one point on the thing. But mostly what I was able to figure out is that squares are bad and triangles are good. So they have like a picture, one side by side the other, it has a picture of a liver. It's the exact same picture of the liver. One of them has squares all over it. The other one has little triangles. Look, you can see the transformation happening. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing is different. This isn't like, it's not even, it's not even a picture of a liver. It's like an anatomical drawing of a liver. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) It is a cartoon liver that has been colored green. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, what the actual system consists of is the hardware which probably does zero, except for like a couple blinky lights, and uh, software that you can load onto your computer. The software seems to have a huge database of anatomical illustrations of every part of your body down to like the globules in your kidneys and your DNA. And what happens when you use the system is you can like scan each organ individually by selecting it, and then it tells you what's wrong with it and what's okay with it. And then it gives you one of those um, resonance frequency 
happiness shots of water to take. And then if you rescan it, it's all better. <laughs> but it specifies that like, you still have to find the root cause of the disruption or else it'll just keep coming back. And it also claims specifically that it can find things that are wrong with you before there are any symptoms. And of course it cures those because, you know, they were like right at the beginning stages. So it's really easy to cure those things. So convenient that you yeah. can cure things that you didn't even know were wrong with you yet. Oh my god. Well, it's gosh. like, uh, th- that reminds me of iridologists, those people who right. claim to, uh, to be able your to eyeballs. diagnose you from your, from your irises. And they will frequently say, oh, I see, uh, I see you're having problems with your shoulder. And you're like, uh, no. They're like, oh, well... <laughs> Uh, you will. You're, yeah. you're go- it hasn't happened yet, but let me let me let me fix that real quick bef- before it becomes an issue. <laughs> I'm a human being over 35. Everything hurts. <laughs> yeah. I I wonder what would happen if, say, you you diagnosed your your kidney and it's like, oh, you've got these kidney problems. Here, let me print you out a quick uh, quick remedy and you infuse your glass of water, but then you don't drink it and then you scan your your kidney again. <laughs> That's the thing, like. I wish I could get my hands on one of these to do all of those little tests. It would be so easy to test. Okay, here's... So I was going to save this to the end, but one of my favorite things I found was on uh, a skeptical article that somebody had written about this product. And one of the comments on that article was the following. I have personally watched one of these machines show a person's healthy gallbladder when they had had it removed years ago. (laughs) (laughs) This happened because the therapist did not have time to enter medical history. His explanation was that the aura of the organ was still there. <laughs> what color is the aura of your gallbladder? <laughs> Green? It's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's octarine. octarine. Yeah. <laughs> I have a few more quotes from the website because they're amazing. Some of it is just pure word salad like this. So let me see if any of you can figure out what they're trying to say here. The principles of the theory of quantum entropy logic... Give justification to claim that a biological organ with pathology have an unstable state and physiospect functions according to the principle of amplification of the initiating signal with the disintegration of metastable systems involved. <laughs> that is one sentence, people. <laughs> Did they just, like, put some of those, um, fridge magnet thingies yeah. that were full of, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. medical yeah. terms Poetry, into yeah. a bag? A theory of quantum entropy logic. <laughs> You know, that well-known theory with which we're all familiar. (laughs) Okay, here's another uh, explanation of how this thing works. They have many, many different explanations of how it works on, like, every page, whether it has anything to do with the theoretical subject, anyway. The physiospect is a system of electronic oscillators resonating at the wavelength of electromagnetic radiation, whose energy is equivalent to the energy breaking down the dominant bonds that maintain the structural organization of the organism under investigation. That would be really bad. Yeah. Yes, that would be awful. Well, that would be pretty high-frequency EM radiation. The magnetic field of the molecular currents affected by external fields lose their initial orientation, which causes misalignment of spin structures of delocalized electrons of admixture center of cortex neurons. That, in turn, gives rise to their unstable, metastable state, whose disintegration acts as an amplifier of the signal. Physiospect produce a preset bioelectrical activity of brain neurons. With this, it becomes possible to selectively amplify signals hardly detectable in the background noise and to isolate and decode the information they contain. Wait, 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 wait. Is the plural of physiospect physiospect? Maybe. I'm pretty sure this is like straight out of Google Translate. (laughs) (laughs) Just, Just checking. So... 
Who wants to guess how much this thing costs? Everything. Uh, I'm going to go $628. Okay. I'm going with more than 1000 Okay. 10 easy payments of $39.95. You guys are all so off. Okay. <laughs> the Physio Expect 17, which is the older model, is 10,500 euros. <gasps> Holy crap. And, this, and Josh's parents-in-law bought two of them? Apparently. No, they, they sprang for the Physio Spec 23, which 12,500 euros. Or if you have the Physio Spec 17, they tell you that it's the same hardware, you just need to pay for the software upgrade. And this is the software that has the DNA in it. 12,500 euros is approximately 18,500 Canadian dollars, which is what I paid for my first house. <laughs> This thing is a house. A very, very <laughs> tiny house. That's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It was a small Holy house, but cow. still. <laughs> Obviously, it was going to be overpriced because it is a nothing machine. Yeah. But that is... I guess they're going for that market where it is so high that it you're going to get... Good. It must be good. You're going to get, like, the true believer kind of thing or, like... Yeah, all the yeah. eggs in one basket. Because well, if it's not that high, then enough people will say, oh, that's ridiculous. But then you see it, it's like, well, maybe there is a secret that I don't know about. Yeah, and they've done studies, too, where the more you pay for something, the higher the placebo effect is yep. on you. Right, yeah. so right. That investment, investment is high. Bias. Yeah, yeah. 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 Bias. Okay, they provide full training in all the different aspects of the physiospect, <laughs> including how to treat children and animals. So apparently they have all animal organs ever loaded onto this thing, too. But it's hilarious. <laughs> we offer one day, three days, and five days programs. The one day program is not enough. The three days programs are quite intensive. The five days programs are more relaxed and allows you to enjoy our facilities like sauna, saltwater pool, hot tub, etc. <laughs> the one day is just not enough. We offer <laughs> it, offer but don't it. take it. <laughs> She's been going around the house going, one day is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough. Don't do it. <laughs> Training is free with the purchase of the physio spec. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, well, okay. To, to be fair, you get your physio spec, but you also get a spa day. You also get, you know, 18 grand worth of sitting in a hot tub. That's a that's, lot of hotel room. That better be the best hot tub you've ever sat in. <sighs> okay. So we were talking about how obviously the huge cost is going to convince people, some people, that it's legit. Unfortunately, it seems like this thing is far from the only device of this type out there. They have a whole page dedicated to the fact that they're not going to disparage any of the other systems, but theirs is definitely the best one, but also they won't tell you which one to buy. You just got to do your research. So here's part of their advice. In your investigation, you should look at case histories, testimonials, training offered, price, too low, and it probably is useless. <laughs> the therapy offered is it metatherapy or mora therapy, the latter being rather an antique in today's NLS system. You may be surprised to find that most manufacturers display the same or similar pictures and descriptions. <laughs> but it is easy to copy the website. The hardware and software is a different story. The first thing you must establish is the unit approved within the European Union. If it is approved, you have a legitimate unit. <laughs> However, be very careful with units manufactured in Taiwan and China. They look the same as the original units. The price is always very attractive. Unfortunately, they never work. It can be a total waste of money. <laughs> it can be it indeed. It can be. So, it looks like people are spending thousands of dollars for a piece of software and a set of headphones. And maybe some blinky lights. The software itself seems to, again, just have thousands of anatomical drawings, which have different overlays of squares and octagons and triangles. 
Uh, Wait, you didn't tell me there are octagons. There this thing octagons. is totally <laughs> legit. <laughs> are the octagons octarine? The lighter octagons, very bad. The darker octagons, somewhat less bad. Okay. <laughs> From what I could tell. I don't know. The descriptions what? make no sense. Does the machine go ping? I don't know. I tried to watch a video. How do you know when you're so, done? There is a YouTube video of someone using this thing on okay. a patient, apparently. Like, because apparently these are people will buy them for their homeopathic practices and diagnose people coming through their clinics with them. I don't know. Like, if I was someone going to this clinic after watching this person use it on me, I would have zero confidence in <laughs> that they had any idea because they were just like clicking through the pictures. Oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. Let's scroll down to the breast one and see if you have breast cancer. <laughs> like, it was very weird. I don't know. But there are videos out there if you want to watch one of these things in action. Okay, there are two ways that this could be harmful one, <laughs> to your bank account. Yeah. <laughs> B, when it stops you from getting decent medical advice. So putting on dodgy headphones and letting them resonate you probably won't have any effect at all one way or the other, but the claim that they can detect and solve problems that don't have any symptoms yet is probably great for people's confidence in their product. So if you believe their lies and you don't go to the doctor, that's probably not going to be great for you, but otherwise I don't think it's going to harm your children. Like, are you getting a good set of, like, Bose headphones or anything? I don't know. They look padded. We talking over ear or on the ear? Over ear. Hmm. Okay, well, 18 grand is a little steep, a but little. honestly not that much higher than... <laughs> The website is incredible. Like, if you just want to go read some fabulous word salad, I recommend it. <laughs> the manual for the whole thing is up there on the website. Like, anybody can read it. Yeah. So that's the physiospect. Wow. Again, thanks for bringing that to our attention, Josh. <laughs> wow. So the moral of the story is, if you see somebody using one of these things, do not go to them for medical attention. Oh, I forgot. Okay. So the first red flag when you go to the website. So they have the the typical like header with the star star in the background, and then physiospect from Russia comes this cutting edge diagnostic and therapy unit. Yeah, <laughs> from Russia with medicine. <laughs> in Soviet Russia, machine run diagnostics on you. <laughs> Next up, we have Laura, who's going to tell us about trans fats. Thanks, Jim. So we, again, like Ashlyn, we got this question a, a while ago, and I had sent a quick reply email to the listener, but uh, hadn't really gotten around to doing the blog post that I said I would do about it. So here we are, and I thought now's a really good time to talk about it, especially since trans fats have been in the news recently, as there was uh, recent uh, significant announcements from Health Canada on that. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But I'll start it off with reading this email from a listener named Devin. Hello. First of all, I love the podcast. Always entertaining, thoughtful, and informative. I look forward to its release each month. I'm emailing to ask a nutrition question, and I know this is Laura's areas of expertise. I was recently told by a coworker that trans fats are defined by the FDA in such a way that a manufactured, partially hydrogenated oil is a trans fat, but then the identical molecule that is naturally occurring is not considered trans fat. This seems like exactly the kind of claim that would make the rounds in the alt-nutrition community, since it's basically saying, the FDA's definitions are designed to ignore this other harmful thing. Aren't they just the worst? However, the claim does not appear completely ridiculous on its face, at least not to a non-expert like myself. Thank you for your time, Devin. 
Well, Devin, that's a really good question. And what your coworker said in a nutshell is true. And I'll go through that. But there's a lot more nuance to that that's really important to know. And I think that you're absolutely right, pointing out that putting some kind of statements out there and saying they don't want you to know this or something like that definitely puts a harmful spin on things, especially for people who might be inclined to not trust governing bodies and that. And it just decreases confidence in some really well-run, well-researched organizations. So before I get into the truth of that question, I wanted to go over what a trans fat is, because I know a lot of us have been hearing a lot about it for the last 10 years, actually, is when it really trans fats really came into focus for most of the public. Aside from knowing that they're not great for us, a lot of people don't really know what they are. So I figured I'd do a little nutrition lesson. So when it comes to fat, fats come in two main categories. Fats are actually, I'll back up, fats are a combination of things called fatty acids and glycerol. So when we talk about trans fats or saturated and unsaturated, we're talking about the fatty acid part of things. That's all you need to know. So they come in two main categories. There's saturated fats and then there's unsaturated fats. So saturated fats have a chain of carbon atoms and then all of those carbon atoms have two or three hydrogen atoms connected to them. Basically, any part of those carbon atoms that could be connected to a hydrogen is connected to a hydrogen. Unsaturated fats have some missing hydrogens in their chain. So they might have um, a couple missing ones. They might have more, more of these ones. So what happens in this case is that the two carbon atoms will bond together twice instead of just once. And so that's where the missing hydrogens come in. And like I said, some some fats will have multiple of these things that are called double bonds. Others will have just one. So unsaturated fats are something, you know, we've heard, oh, these are really healthy for us. So these are the ones that have those double bonds. And it's the double bond is really important here because it changes the shape of the fatty acid. So a saturated fatty acid, it's kind of like, if you can imagine, kind of like a straight line. So they pack together really neatly and tightly, and that's what makes things like butter and lard and the fat in us humans solid at room temperature, okay? Unsaturated fats have bends in them. These double bonds make the make a bend or a kink in the chain and they can make several of them. So they don't pack together very nicely. So that's what keeps them typically liquid at room temperature. So think like canola oil or soybean oil or something like that. So without all the science, my rule of thumb of if it's solid at room temperature, it's a trans fat. And if it's... If it's solid at room room temperature, temperature, it's a saturated saturated fat. If it's liquid at room temperature, it's an unsaturated fat. And most animal fats are saturated, right? Animal fats pretty much are, because otherwise our fat would be liquefied inside of us and sloshing around, (laughs) right? Not cool. (laughs) Let's not do that. Yeah. So typically, um, most fats that are saturated come from animals. There's a few exceptions like palm oil, palm kernel, and the ever popular coconut oil. I'm sorry. I don't think you heard enough eye roll in that there. (laughs) But I digress. Um, So we call those tropical oils and those ones are saturated. And you'll notice like the tub of coconut oil is semi-solid, but it's not liquid, right? You can't pour it out without heating it up but it's a slightly different type of saturated fat, which I'm not gonna get into. All right, so that's a basic fat lesson. So where does trans fats come into this? You might be wondering, because this sounds like it's a third type of fat. The double bonds in unsaturated fats are fairly unstable, okay? That double bond, it can kind of hang out like that, but 
it's easier for that bond to break apart and to get some extra hydrogens and because that's a lower energy state it takes less energy to than that double bond does back at the turn of the 20th century some uh chemists were taking advantage of that because they were looking for new types of cooking fats because there wasn't a lot of butter and animal fat to go around and they were looking for economical things that could be used like butter and that so then they stumbled upon this process of hydrogenation what they figured out they could do is with a chemical catalyst they could mix these unsaturated oils or fats with this catalyst and bombard it with a whole bunch of hydrogen and that would sort of force those double bonds apart and make the hydrogen atoms stick into what were double bonds and make it more of a saturated fat so it would turn it into a solid fat. I should mention, I should back up a little bit and say that these double bonds typically come in two forms. So the ones that have occur in most oils naturally are called cis double bonds. So that means on the same side. So basically what it means is that that's what forms the, the kink or the bend in the fatty acid chain. So the fatty acid chain comes off the same side of the of the double bond. If you look at pictures online, you'll understand, but it makes kind of an angle. The other configuration that can happen is called trans, which means opposite sides or, or changing sides. So that's where the, the fatty acid chain comes off of opposite sides. So that's where the, instead of having a bend or a kink, the trans double bond allows for a much flatter or straighter fatty acid so it can pack together. So as part of this hydrogenation process that I was talking about, there's some of these cis double bonds don't always get full of hydrogen and actually they try not to do that because if you take a, a liquid oil and you fully hydrogenate it, it typically turns into a very very hard fat that's actually not very good for using it's very hard like super hard it doesn't melt at room temperature at all it's waxy it's not tasty it's not pleasant like the old style margarines that you had to beat and even more so than that like fully fully hydrogenated oils are very hard so they're not they're not something that you would want to eat so much. They're more for sculpting? I would imagine that sculpting would be a good a good thing okay. for that. That's why all of my packages have partially hydrogenated oil on them. Yes, yes, exactly. So instead of trying to fully hydrogenate everything, they go with partially hydrogenated because that gives some flexibility. There's still enough um, kind of double bonds left in there that it makes it melt a little bit better. So think your Crisco kind of texture. What happens though, as part of the hydrogenation process, is that those cis double bonds, even though they didn't get hydrogenated, they flip into the transposition because the transposition is lower energy than the cis is. So it goes from that bendy kind of double bond to the more straight double bond. So that's where we get the bulk of our trans fats from. My understanding was that that also will take like your your unsaturated oil and make it a lot longer lasting, like it's a yeah. preservative. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, again, another reason why they went with this hydrogenation, because that whole instability of those double bonds, like our bodies actually really like those double bonds. They're really good for us in a lot of ways, but they're really prone to oxidation. So free radicals, reactive oxygen species, things like that. Like that's where you get that um, rancidity will come yeah. from. So foods that are made or foods that naturally have a lot of those double bonds, unsaturated, are going to go rancid a lot faster. So the trans double bonds don't go rancid as quickly because it's that lower energy state. And really that's what it comes down to because they don't have that need to interact with other chemicals because it's already kind of holding its own. 
That's how trans fats fit into the whole category. They're an unsaturated fat, but they act like a saturated fat. So they kind of, they went from one phase to another, but they don't have any of the health benefits of naturally occurring cis unsaturated fats. Everybody straight so far? Except for the trans fats. (laughs) (laughs) No, they are straight. The cis ones are all bendy all over the place. I picked up everything from that. (laughs) (laughs) Trans fats go from kinky to straight. So they pack together. Why do conservatives hate the trans so much then if they're straight? (laughs) So there is another source of trans fats. And this one is one I didn't know about until I was in nutrition school. And I think it's becoming more popularly known, but I think a lot of people still don't know about it. Meats and milk products and pretty much animal products that come from ruminant animals. So like your cows and anything with multiple stomach chambers that like to chew their cud and things like that. Their tissues and milk have some trans fats in them as well. They're called ruminant trans fats. And there's a couple different varieties of them. Um, they have some that are just straight on trans fats. And then there's they like vaccinic acid and oleic acid. Those are the two. They also have something called conjugated linoleic acids. And these ones are, while they're the smallest portion of the, the ruminant trans fatty acids, they're the ones that get the most attention because you'll see them in supplements, nutrition supplements, and they've been investigated for their health potential and things like that. These come from the bacteria that live in the animal stomachs. They produce these trans fatty acids. And so then the animal's bodies and and milk and stuff absorb them. And then if we eat those things, we get the trans fats from there. So vaccinic acid, oleic acid are in fact the exact same trans fats that happen when you do chemical hydrogenation of unsaturated fats to create something like Crisco, for example, or like a shortening or something like that. Yeah, they're chemically identical. Do their bodies just do that naturally somehow? Do their bodies hydrogenate their... Well, it's the bacteria. Oh, okay. It's the bacteria in the the rumen and and things like that that will take the cis fatty acids from the grasses and the grains that they're eating and change it into trans forms there. Animals don't make the trans fatty acids. It's the things living within us that make, or within the uh, the ruminants that make the trans fatty acids. So to get back to Devin's question here, the vaccinic acid, the oleic acid are in fact the same fatty acids that are in partially hydrogenated oils, chemically identical. And when you look at the definitions of things like the World Health Organization, they do acknowledge that, yes, these fatty acids are the same things. They are, in fact, trans fatty acids. The difference is that in terms of an ingredient, they're not a trans fatty acid, if that makes sense, because these things occur within goat meat or or beef or things like that. They're not added to it. They're not a food ingredient, so they're part of it. In, in milk, for example, calcium is not an ingredient in milk, right? It just is part of it. So I think that's why that coworker would have that distinction there, that when you look at something like the FDA, they're not regulating foods per se. They're regulating things that go into foods, yeah. right? So they're not regulating an egg, but they're regulating an egg that's fortified with something else because that something else is not typically part of that egg, right? Does that make sense mm-hmm. there? The, the other difference too is looking at how much of the total fat comes from these trans fatty acids. In ruminant meat, these trans fatty acids make up less than 5% of the total fat in the meat. The rest is pretty much saturated fat. Whereas in partially hydrogenated oils, it's up to 45% is these things. 
So I think it makes a lot more sense to try to, instead of just thinking of trans fats, but thinking of it as these partially hydrogenated oils. And the reason why the FDA and Health Canada are cracking down on things like the partially hydrogenated oils is because these are added ingredients. These are things that we have total control over whether they're in our food supply or not. I mean, yes, technically we have control over whether ruminant meat and products are in our food supply as well. But the best evidence right now does show that in the amounts typically consumed, the trans fats that come from the ruminant meats don't cause health issues any more than too much saturated fat would from them or too much um, red meat consumption compared to leaner or plant-based proteins or something like that. So we're not super concerned about the small amount that we're getting. Does that make sense to everybody? Yep. You have a good rundown? So like I said, there's big recent announcement from Health Canada that's in October of 2018, partially hydrogenated oils will no longer be allowed in foods in Canada. Now, trans fats, like I said, about a decade ago, a lot of products went through reformulation when they started adding trans fats to the nutrition labels list and they started putting in voluntary limits and, and a lot of research was coming out saying how bad they are. This how much is, candy is Canada going to lose? Not a lot, <laughs> but your baked shelf-stable goods could be a problem. Ooh, okay. My candy? flakies. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Oh. oh, you eat those? Dave and I are kind of obsessed with them, man. Oh, man. I make first ingredients oil. You know what? I don't know about passion flakes, so you'd have to check and see what it is. Because with a lot of this reformulation, even things like Crisco, which was like hydrogenated fat have gone through reformulation so that they don't actually have a lot of trans fats in them anymore. Is that why whenever I make a pie, I need to freeze it now? I don't know about it's, that. It seems like it's goopier than it used to be. In any case, um, you will notice some product changes and some texture changes from some of these types of things. And some things like hard stick margarine, the kind that you had to whip and, and that, that comes in the blocks, that's a product that's like, well, can we even make this anymore without these partially hydrogenated fat? Because they really rely on that texture. It matters that we want to take the trans fats out of our diet, even if we might lose the passion flakies. Yes. <laughs> because trans fats seem to be the worst of the fats out there. They seem to have all of the bad qualities of every type of fat and none of the good qualities. So there's people that are more well-versed than I, but basically what they do is they tend to raise the bad cholesterol and decrease the density of the bad cholesterol. And they also happen to decrease the good cholesterol. So even saturated fat could also increase your good cholesterol and, and things like that before, but trans fats just do all the bad stuff. So, um, so they're a George Lucas villain of the fats world. Yeah, like they're just, they're just the worst. Uh, a recent review found that with regular consumption of trans fats, there was an increased risk of all-cause mortality of 34% and a 21% increase in, in coronary heart disease with oh. trans fats. So they really, really do make a difference there. So that's why if we can control how much of these things we add into our food, the small amount that's coming from naturally occurring sources isn't going to make a big deal there. It's really the big dollops of it that we're getting from things like, well, for example, like Kraft peanut butter, which everybody considers normal peanut butter, that was full of partially hydrogenated fats before. So Did it say on the label whether there was trans fat though. So that's also an interesting thing <laughs> because in Canada and I believe in the US, food labels allow you to put 0 grams of trans fat if per serving 
there is less than 0.5 grams. Mm. Okay? So if it's serving as a tablespoon. Or a teaspoon. Who eats a teaspoon of peanut butter? Nobody. Nobody eats a teaspoon of peanut butter. (laughs) But this is also important because I think of the Crisco, for example. The serving size Mm. listed on there is two teaspoons. I use a cup and a quarter in a pie. How many teaspoons is that, Jem? A cup and a quarter? Oh. You don't need to do the math. The point is it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, 60 teaspoons. So, and if you eat that whole pie yourself, that could end up being a lot. a lot there. So it makes a difference. So so that's a little bit of a loophole. So you have to know what your serving size yeah. is. You have to be able to trust that these partially hydrogenated things aren't in there. Bottom line, try to stay away from things that say hydrogenated until after October 2018 if you can't be sure that partially hydrogenated oils full of trans fats aren't in that. One more year. One more year. And then if passion flakes still exist after that. We're going to stock up, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't get the trans fat kinds. They might not exist. <laughs> Make your own. They last forever. <laughs> we can have a cupboard full. <laughs> That's what Laura was saying. Is the bad thing. So this is from the states. So they have different labeling requirements. But it says palm and palm kernel oils, modified palm oil, and modified palm kernel oil. Yeah. So modified typically means that they rearranged the fatty acids on the glycerol backbone, but they didn't change the structure of the fatty acids themselves. So on a glycerol backbone, there's three fatty acids there in typical fat. So modified will mean like they disconnected a couple of them and maybe flipped them around or took some from a different type of oil and put them in there. That can be interestified is the word for that. Interestified. (laughs) That's an amazing word. Interesterification. Oh, okay. Because esters are a chemical connection. It's less awesome now that it's (laughs) sciencey. But yeah. it sounds like so, it sounds like your passion flakies yeah. are okay. Yeah, your passion flakies, at least from the states, are okay. You know, but they do I have different formulations. Company, isn't it Vachon? It is Vachon, but I could only find the American version of the label. Oh, okay. So the and and these different things too will have will be licensed by different companies in different places. So passion flake in the states could be made by a different company with different ingredients. So you'll have to go home and do some research on your passion flakies. Ew. <laughs> So, Devin, I hope I answered your question. Bottom line is try to reduce your trans fats, and soon it'll be much, much easier to do that. That uh, stuff about the ruminants is really cool. Yeah, yeah. Get microbiota are pretty cool. They do a lot of stuff. Great. Thanks, Laura. Next, Lauren is going to tell us all about password best practices. This was a short topic because I'm in the middle of writing my uh, novel for National Novel Writing Month, and I really didn't have the time to spare to do thousands of words on something that wasn't being counted. (laughs) (laughs) I saw your word count the other day. It looks like you're doing well. And then I had 300 words today. It's better than me. (laughs) Yeah, well, you, you get it all planned out in your head, and then you sit down in front of your Scrivener or whatever, and you look, and you're like, what is a word? How can I write a novel? I don't know from sentence structure. So that's where my brain is right now. (laughs) But there are people smarter than me, and I'm going to talk about them. In June 2017, the National Institute of Standards and Technology published a four-volume study entitled Digital Identity Guidelines, Authentication, and Lifecycle Management. It's exactly as interesting as it sounds. (laughs) Oh, good. No, it's really, the full PDF is available on the website, and we're going to have it in the show notes, and it it is really interesting. Well, Jem will find it interesting. (laughs) 
The study was authored by a large team. The head author was Paul Grassi. The Institute, referred to as NIST, is run by the United States Department of Commerce. The head of the Department of Commerce is currently Wilbur Ross, who, mm. on the day we are recording this, was discovered to have a stake in a shipping firm that receives millions of dollars a year in revenue from a company whose key owners include Russian President Vladimir Putin's son-in-law and a Russian tycoon sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department as a member of Putin's inner circle. She said reading CBC just before we went to air. <laughs> <laughs> he also has a recorded history of funding oligarchs. NIST, however, is run by the undersecretary, Walter Copan, who appears to actually know something about technology. Well, this is good. Well, it, it's better. Mm -hmm. He's still not great, but he knows what he's talking about. At least he knows, like, something about his field. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Copan was confirmed in October of 2017. So this report was started under the direction of the former NIST director, Willie E. May. So I looked all of this up to triple check that these guidelines were like legit and they weren't subject to any worry that the contents were all about making networks easier to hack or exploit or <laughs> the Russians are coming or whatever. So what are these new password best practices? There are three main suggestions and I'm using the summary provided by Bruce Schneier because he says it better than I can. He often says it better than, than anyone can. He's, yep. uh, he's really good at, uh, at these sorts of things. He also was the guy who went head-to-head -head on uh, transportation security with Sam Harris and handed his ass to him. And, I, I uh, fell yeah. deep into his blog today, and I'm like, yeah. that's probably why I didn't get any nano words written. <laughs> <laughs> so number one, stop it with the annoying password complexity rules. They make passwords harder to remember. They increase errors because artificially complex passwords are harder to type in, and they don't help that much it's better to allow people to use passphrases. Number two, stop it with password expiration. That was an old idea for an old way we used computers. Today, don't make people change their passwords unless there's indication of compromise. Three, let people use password managers. This is how we deal with all the passwords that we need. At last count, I had more than 200 accounts in my password manager. Yes. So the original rules, prescribed in 2003, were intended to fix the user. We're now looking to focus on fixing the network security. We now have decades of research and experience on how lazy or unsafe most people can be with their passwords. I know that I'm guilty of, well, from my work login at least, using a word with unusual capitalization, adding a character, and tacking a number onto the end. When it expires, I up the number. <laughs> Until <laughs> so I reach the cutoff for when the network will, re will allow me to reset it, and then I start back at one. <laughs> yep, done that. I was discussing this with Dave earlier, and he's like, yeah, you have no idea how many of these networks that I've set up that have very similar passwords. Uh, the really interesting thing about this report that NIST released is afterwards, an interview the former NIST director, Bill Burr, gave to the Wall Street Journal this past August. And Burr was the person who came up with the former best practices in 2003. And he now says that he regrets giving them as advice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Burr concurs that the guidelines he set out in 2003, most of which are suggested to be reversed, were flawed. To quote Burr, In the end, it was probably too complicated for a lot of folks to understand very well. And the truth is, it was barking up the wrong tree. So will this change the way that companies and governments secure their systems? Probably not in the short term, if I'm being honest. Large companies with millions tied up in their logistics are generally slow to change their behaviors. Thoughts? Yeah, 
Yeah, pretty much. I was, as you were talking about the password expiry, I was reminded that I was getting the little pop-up at my work computer that uh, when I go in tomorrow, I'll have to change my password to I took Friday the off. other ones again. <laughs> I took Friday off and I had to change mine on Thursday. So now I have a sticky note with the, per, the, the number pertaining. It doesn't actually write my password. I know what my base password is, but I now know which number it's pertaining to. <laughs> You know, there's obviously a limit to the number of unique passwords that a human can remember. A lot of people will reuse passwords or every like new account that they create, and that is obviously very insecure because uh, I was just talking about this with a friend last night. A really great way to steal somebody's identity is to create a uh, a which Weasley twin are you uh, quiz uh, yes. <laughs> on the internet. Yeah. Uh, post it to Facebook. And, uh, you know, somebody will go through and they'll, you know, they'll answer their 10 questions and then they'll click the button to get the to get their result. And then it'll pop up and say, you need to create an account to get your result. Uh, don't worry, it's quick and easy. You know, you don't make them create the account beforehand because then they're just not going to do yeah. the quiz. But now that they're invested, they'll create an account. And to create an account, you just need to enter an email address and you need to create a password. The password people create is very often, the password to the email account they just provided you, you yep. then log into their email account and you change that password. And then you use that email account to find other accounts that they've signed up for on the internet. And you trigger the, I forgot my password to all of those accounts, get those new passwords emailed to you. And now you have access to their entire online life. So... I apologize to those of you I've just terrified. <laughs> um, this is not new news. Yeah. You don't want to reuse passwords. Uh, and you especially don't want to use your email password for uh, anything else, especially some throwaway thing on the internet. But there are a limited number of passwords that you can remember. So using a password manager like 1Password or LastPass or any of the other similar products available uh, is a good idea. For me, I use passphrases where I can for passwords that I can remember. So instead of having uh, a 30-character password, I might have a 40-character password, but it will be, you know, like some nonsense words strung together. But they're nonsense words that I can remember uh, yeah. that kind of tell a weird story. Uh, like what, Jem? Can you give us a <laughs> You know, but you can come up with these by just looking looking around a room. You can mm -hmm. say, like, time, green, Tolkien, buttercup. <laughs> and, you know, suddenly you've got a password that, you know, is just dictionary words. Uh, but, you know, you can, you can use that and it's going to be hard to crack because it's long, but it's also not going to be that hard to remember. I used to keep a copy of the periodic table above my desk at work. So I would just use a column or a line from that as uh, a set of passwords. Interesting. So uh, for things that I need to remember, like uh, logins for computers or for emails, those will usually be longer passphrases that I have a chance to remember. They're stored in my password manager as well. And then I just have my one password manager password, my Which master is password. password that I with need to S. remember. <laughs> yeah, password with a capital P and uh, the, dollar, the, signs the, the dollar signs for the S's and a zero for the O. Um, and there you go. Uh, yeah, so so that's that's the way I personally handle it. Um, your mileage may vary, but passwords are hard. They're a hard part of life, but they're an increasingly important one, right? Yeah. So fix the technology. Don't try to fix your users. Yeah. People are lazy. Yeah, I remember when I was working at Safeway's IT office, like 
everybody, everybody's desk, either behind the monitor or oh. in or in their their desk drawer, would have their password because we oh. had one of these password expiry systems where you know you couldn't use the the same password you used the last thirteen times. And I mean, yeah. I'm not proud of mine, but ah, uh. <laughs> and I am more careful with my internet-based stuff. And you know, you can complain all you want about people being insecure with their passwords, but your policy is not going to fix people, and it's not going to fundamentally change the way people behave. So if people are doing this, that means that the system needs to be fixed, right? They're not going to stop putting magnets on their PC, because Snoopy (laughs) is pretty. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what this NIST uh, uh, update tries to do. It tries to address that. Yeah, and it's super fascinating. It's only about 80 pages, so quick read. Cool. So uh, one of the most memorable pieces of feedback that we've received recently, I think, was from a listener who was upset, I think the word they used was enraged, uh, with uh, our treatment of the gender wage gap, uh, which I honestly, I don't remember bringing up. It might have been uh, in one of the episodes that we had uh, that we had Brendan on, probably came up in passing. Uh, but Uh, This listener felt that we relied too heavily on anecdotes about, for example, male bosses being biased in favor of male employees or whatever, and didn't talk about the economic theory or market forces that might be responsible for the... For the gap. So, uh, that's what I'm here to talk about today. So put your trilby on, buddy. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, uh, what is the gender pay gap? Simply put, the gender pay gap, or the gender wage gap, is the observation that over their working lives, women are paid significantly less than men. The figure that's often tossed about is that the average woman makes 78 cents for every dollar a man makes, making for a pay gap of 22%. Why does this pay gap exist? Well, the obvious answer is discrimination against women in the workforce. Let's set that explanation aside for for a moment. Don't worry, I will definitely be coming back to it because discrimination, both explicit and implicit, is a major factor. But first, we're going to look at the data and the various ways in which it has been interpreted, uh, often in service of pushing the blame for the pay gap back onto women themselves. So, we, we have hard data about the size of the pay gap. What precisely you're measuring and how the controls are set up will have a significant effect on the results, which is to be expected. But the first objection that is always raised when the gap is brought up is that the 78% figure is a myth. It isn't. (laughs) But when critics say it's a myth, that seems to be a lazy way of saying that it's not controlling for the things that they think it should control for. We're about to get into the weeds with this one, but off the top, let me assure you that the gap is not a myth, and that even when one controls for everything that the critics ask for, the gap remains in just about every country. I think in every country that we've been able to measure, including Canada and the United States. And it remains significant. But more than that, there are reasons that, uh, for some discussions, we might not want to control for everything. More on that later. But first, some more numbers. According to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, it's true that the average working woman makes about 78% of what the average working man makes. The missing 22% is what's called the unadjusted pay gap, because it does not control for occupation, education, and job experience. The precise figure varies by study, 
A 2016 analysis by the American Association of University Women, for example, found 80% rather than 78%, so it doesn't vary by much. Uh, in 2015, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, released a large data set comparing the pay gap across dozens of economically developed countries. Finding the worst pay gap in Korea, a gap of 37%, and Japan, where it was 26%, and the lowest gaps in Costa Rica at 4% and Denmark at 6%. Canada and the United States were actually near the bottom of the pack, with 18.6% and 18.9% pay gaps respectively, which is better than Chile and Portugal, but worse than Mexico, Colombia, and pretty much all of Europe. The OECD calls these data unadjusted, uh, but, they are, uh, but they are comparing only full-time employees and averaging with median rather than statistical means, so we are, we are controlling somewhat for hours worked, which is important. So, depending on who you ask, it is true that the average working woman in the United States makes between 78% and 81% of what the average working man makes, which makes for a pay gap of 19 to 22%. The numbers for Canada are almost identical. So that's the unadjusted pay gap. Uh, exactly what constitutes a fully adjusted pay gap is debatable, with different studies employing different controls. Uh, most unadjusted comparisons, as I mentioned, will still only compare full-time employees, which effectively controls for hours worked, but can be problematic when one gender is slightly more likely to be fully employed than the other, not necessarily through choice. A recent study from the American Association of University Women found that when they controlled for college major, occupation, age, geographical region, and hours worked, there remained a 7% wage gap between male and female college grads a year after graduation. That 7% is significant, especially for middle class and lower income families. But there are also valid criticisms to be leveled against this statistic. Looking only at college grads a year after graduation will definitely artificially narrow the gap, because you're going to be looking at a cohort of almost exclusively younger people, and there's evidence showing that the gender pay gap widens with age. In general, salaries increase with age, uh, though not universally, but men's salaries increase more with age than women's salaries do. As people near retirement age, salaries tend to go down, but women's salaries start going down earlier than men's salaries do. So for that same cohort, we would expect that 7% figure to grow as that population ages. One of the controls on that 7% figure was occupation, which seems like a good idea, but here we can also raise reasonable concerns. It is well established that in addition to a wage gap, there is also an employment gap in many industries, including the most lucrative. The leaking earlier this year of an internal memo of dubious merit penned by an engineer at Google has spurred ongoing discussion about the gender employment gap in the tech industry. The Google engineer argued, unconvincingly by my read, that the employment gap is caused by biological differences between men and women, and differences in their inherent interests and aptitudes. Uh, <laughs> makes me rage just to think of it. 
Strangely, these supposedly inherent interests and aptitudes vary geographically and over time. <laughs> In 2012, for example, only 21% of those pursuing undergraduate computer science degrees in the United States were women, uh, while in 1984, the year I was born, that figure was 37%, almost double. You can also compare the 21% figure to India, where in 2013, 45% of their computer science undergraduates were women. We also see bias in hiring in STEM, uh, that's uh, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. With a 2012 paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, finding that when screening applications for a laboratory manager position, scientists rated identical resumes as significantly less competent if they had a woman's name on them, and offered lower salaries and fewer career mentoring opportunities. Similar results have been found when comparing applications with typical African-American names to identical resumes with white names on them. There is evidence that the employment gap has multiple causes. We must always be careful of the single cause fallacy. It would be very surprising indeed, however, if the widespread and well-documented discrimination and harassment that women in tech face were not a factor. Many women leave STEM shortly after graduation, citing a hostile work environment, and this retention gap exacerbates the hiring gap in the tech industry. The argument that differential rates of employment are due to inherent differences between the genders and the races serves as a convenient way for white dudes like me to ignore all the complicated evidence and hand-wave any complicity we might have in a status quo that disproportionately benefits us. I could spend the rest of my segment dissecting the Google memo and illustrating the ways in which it selectively quotes research and exaggerates the certainty of its findings, turning mays and couldbes into musts and ars, but this is already a tangent. Getting back on track, when women and men are hired at different rates, are treated differently in the workforce, and leave the industry for different reasons, controlling for occupation can serve to hide this very real discrepancy. The employment gap doesn't make the pay gap a myth. Instead, it contributes to it. So, turning back to the pay gap, let's talk about some of the explanations and excuses proffered for why men and women are paid different amounts. Again, ignoring for the moment overt discrimination as, a, as an explanation. So, one excuse is women choose lower paying jobs. One of the fascinating aspects here is that the pay gap persists even when we focus on these low-paying jobs that women are more likely to do statistically. For example, women make up about 70% of American elementary school teachers. But female elementary school teachers still earn only 87% of what male elementary school teachers do. And framing jobs as a choice is complex. It's, it's fraught because it presupposes that these choices uh, are unconstrained by societal pressure. And it also assumes that the market actually values professions like teachers and nurses appropriately, which it does not. <laughs> Shocker, women's work paid less. <laughs> and, and you also see pay change when the demographics of the people doing that work change. Yeah. Another excuse, uh, sorry, explanation. <laughs> <laughs> women are more likely to work part-time jobs. This may be true, but all of the numbers that I presented so far control for full-time work, and the gap persists. And if women are less likely to have full-time jobs, we should question why that is, rather than simply taking it at face value. 
women do a lot more unpaid labor than men do in the home, uh, e e even in households where both partners work full-time. Uh, another excuse. Women are less desirable hires because they leave to have families and stuff. Okay, so this is coming from a dude who's taken parental leave twice. Uh, this is some gender essentialism bullshit. Men also care for families. Men also take parental leave. There's still some lingering stigma in some corners, but that's beginning to change. However, there is a kernel of truth here, in that, uh, as I've mentioned, women are assumed to take on more of the family and household burden than men are. But there's no reason that they should, and that's a societal ill that we should work to address, rather than assuming it's innate and something that never changes, and then choosing to discriminate in our hiring and pay practices and even if it were true, and it wouldn't ever change, I'd still argue that it's an unethical business decision. Everyone remembers Martin Shkreli, right? <laughs> the market encourages all sorts of unethical behavior, from price and wage fixing to trust consolidation to unsafe working conditions. Saying that market forces are responsible and just leaving it at that is a really lazy excuse. Another excuse. Women earn less because they have lower levels of education. This is false at pretty much every level. I'll quote the uh, American Association of University Women here. As a rule, earnings increase as years of education increase for both men and women. However, while more education is a useful tool for increasing earnings, it is not effective against the gender pay gap. At every level of academic achievement, women's median earnings are less than men's median earnings, and in some cases, the gender pay gap is larger at higher levels of education. Education improves earnings for women of all races and ethnicities, but earnings are affected by race and ethnicity as well as gender. Additionally, women tend to take on more debt than men for both undergraduate and graduate degrees, and because of the pay gap, women who complete their education are not able to pay off their student debt as quickly, leaving them in debt longer, seeing them pay more interest than their male counterparts over the length of the debt, and putting them at greater risk of defaulting. Research conducted by the AAUW recently found that while 57% of bachelor's degrees are awarded to women, women hold nearly two-thirds of outstanding student debt in the United States. And there isn't just a gender pay gap, there's also a race pay gap. I'll quote the uh, American Association of University Women again. Earnings are affected by race and ethnicity as well as gender. White women are paid more than black and Hispanic women at all education levels. Black women make 64% of what white men do, and Latina women make even less, barely more than half what a white man does. Okay, I, I think this might be the last bad excuse I'm going to talk about. But there's so many more. Yeah. Women don't negotiate or ask for raises. Right, I've heard this so much. This is passing the buck. Equal pay for equal work is not a difficult concept, however good the negotiating strategy of your employees is. Worse, uh, when marginalized people ask for raises or speak up about inequality, they risk being seen as pushy or simply not a good culture fit, which can lead to a very understandable reticence to push too hard for that raise. Okay, so let's talk about what people deserve to make for a minute. Um, obviously, this is some complicated stuff, and your conclusions will be informed by your beliefs, values, and priorities. For me, this is particularly noticeable when we start talking about what people deserve to make. We're going we're to get into some territory that other people might disagree with here, too. The fact that 
I don't believe that anyone is the ultimate author of their choices. <laughs> uh, refer to our episode on free will if you don't know what I'm talking about. That, uh, that certainly informs my political views, and it makes me deeply skeptical of libertarianism and capitalism more generally. But that's a topic for another show, and one I promise we'll never make, so don't <laughs> worry. <laughs> but I just want to lay my cards on the table so everyone knows where I'm coming from. Standard arguments justifying the wage gap, like Stan deserves to make more money than Sheila because he worked harder and chose a more lucrative profession, aren't going to hold much water for me for a couple of reasons. Not just for the standard reasons like who judges that Stan works harder? Is there bias at play there? Uh, who decides what professions are inherently worthier? And why does it often turn out that professions favored by women pay worse? Uh, was it easier for a variety of social, political, and economic reasons for Stan to choose his career than for Sheila to choose the same career? Did they have equal opportunity? Certainly not. Not just for those reasons, which are all legitimate to raise when we're talking about the pay gap, but I also have uh, more esoteric objections. Assuming that Stan does work harder, who gets the ultimate credit for that? Not Stan, because his choices are simply the product of circumstance. <laughs> oh god, John. Ass yeah. assuming, I hate it when you do this. Assuming Sheila does work less hard, doesn't she still have the same basic needs as Stan? What's he going to do with that extra money? Why does he need it? Just because he works harder. Yeah, fuck Stan. <laughs> so absent from the assumption of uh, some sort of libertarian version of free will, uh, what does deserve even mean? So I, I, I don't expect our listeners to find this second set of considerations as convincing or relevant as the first, but I felt compelled to bring them up nevertheless because they do have a serious impact on my thinking uh, when talking about uh, uh, political and economic theories in general. So let's get back on the beaten path here. The pay gap exists, and it's significant. And no matter what you control for, it doesn't go away. It's improving, as in it's narrowing, but very slowly, with current projections seeing a pay gap in the United States until 2059 at the very least. And again, we're still looking at white men versus white women, and we're not even looking at people who don't identify as either male or female. So that, that those numbers are for all men and all women, but we will still have a, a race pay gap that will oh, persist yeah. beyond, uh, uh, beyond the gender pay gap. That's true. And there's also some evidence to suggest that progress on the pay gap may be slowing, uh, with more recent estimates revised well into the 2100s until the pay gap right, is closed. I'm curious, do we know if the pay gap is closing... Because women are making more, or because men are making less, or both? Uh, that, that is a good question. I don't have hard data on that. Uh, however, we do know that at every level of advancement, you know, from, from your entry-level positions to your CEOs and COOs, uh, there is a pay gap that does not appear to be closing quickly. Uh, the the median worker is being paid less. I don't know. I was just curious if you knew. Yeah. Uh, the answer no. was no. The, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know, and I don't know whether it's possible to make a distinction with the data that we have. In response to women speaking out about the pay gap and other forms of discrimination that they face, I often see men dismiss their horror stories as mere anecdote, an irrelevancy that doesn't rise to the vaunted status of data. And while it's true that anecdote and data are not synonymous, anecdotes can be used to provide useful context and color for our data, and they're much better than raw data at spurring us to action. Mm -hmm. So let's not pretend that anecdotes are useless. 
and let's place anecdotes in the context of the data, rather than just pretending those anecdotes don't exist. And we should also ask how reliable our data are, and uh, whether they are also subject to bias, which in some cases uh, they, they are. They totally are. <laughs> so, what should we do about this? Well, as individuals, we can pressure our workplaces to audit their salaries for gender-based pay discrepancies and to adopt hiring practices that combat bias, such as removing information that identifies gender and race from applications uh, during their evaluation. There are compelling economic reasons that corporations should refrain from discriminating against women, uh, discrimination that results in costly lawsuits and in skilled workers leaving the industry, but I would argue that the moral case is far more urgent and compelling. Corporations are always going to try to screw you over. They are not your friend. Women can learn strategies to better negotiate for equal pay, and this is something that the AAUW uh, provides workshops on. But I'd caution that this lean-in mentality is a stopgap at best. It isn't always going to work, and marginalized people risk being, uh, being dismissed as pushy or uppity if they speak up. Speaking to my fellow men, especially white men, we need to take on the moral duty to advocate for equality, because we are far less likely to face the adverse consequences of speaking up than other people are. The worst thing we can do, though, is to dismiss the gap as a myth, or women's fault, or not worth fixing. What are you talking about next month, Ashlyn? Well, interestingly enough, next month's topic was also a listener request. Uh, <laughs> I believe last year, but I was just trying to find the uh, message. Someone begged us to please, please do the Kirk Cameron Christmas movie. Yeah, Saving Christmas. So, yes, we will be watching Saving Christmas next month for you. Excellent. <laughs> Yay. Well, thanks for joining me, everyone. Good night. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. Good night. Yeah, there's no like overarching way to end this show. Yeah, because so it was just a, a list of random things. <laughs> Thank Thanks for sending in your, your requests. Please send in more. Yes, definitely. It's great to have these topic ideas, and we want to do a show that you enjoy listening to with questions that are really meaningful to you. So please send in your questions or comments or whatever it is. And we'll get to them more than once every six years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we, we have done topics in the past that were listener requests. Yeah, yeah Drake, and we answer questions at the top of the show. I haven't gotten any advice requests in a while. Oh, yeah. Send them over. Well, at least not ones that you can put on the air. Yeah. Good night! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Ashlyn Noble and Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jem Newman. the word kink in my segment a lot <laughs> and I was already talking to Jem how I didn't want to say it because I knew you guys would start cackling not gonna not gonna are trans fats kinky no oh and that's the problem we've already discussed how testicles predict the weather today's
Oh, oh yeah, I f***ed up the joke, damn it. It's okay. And you'll notice like the tub of coconut oil is semi-solid, but it's not liquid, right? You can't pour it out without heating it up. It, it is very disappointing because it kind of looks like frosting. <laughs> so does not. Crisco. I think if you put it into some of those things, it would taste like coconutty frosting or something, but I, I don't use coconut oil, so I don't really know. But there's over 400 uses for it online, Laura. <laughs> Or what can't it do? Laura, you are not qualified to talk about uh, about coconut oil if you if you are not a user of coconut oil. Oh right. Yeah. How could you possibly know? The first you're trying it yourself. The first rule of coconut oil club. <laughs> She'd only be qualified to talk about coconut oil if she was a nutritionist. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. But I am not a nutritionist. I'm a dietitian. Damn it. <laughs> I have a degree in self respect. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, tough episode to edit. <laughs> <laughs> the hydrogen atoms stick into what were double bonds and make it more of a saturated fat, so it would turn it into a solid fat. So it cures the oil of its kinks. Yes. You deserve everything bad that happens to you, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Next, Lauren is going to tell us all about password expiry regulations. Password expiry rules. Password expiry... This is the part where we get to make fun of you, right? It's always the part where you get to make fun of me. <laughs> We're just going to tie your arms to your sides. But then how will I talk? Yeah, you got to do this to get this point across. <laughs> the flail. Whatever, Doc Brown. Yeah. <laughs> Run, Fred Marty! God. I did not expect a Christopher Lloyd impression. Why did you not? Because <laughs> ah, I'm tired and a nano ate my soul. <laughs> after leaking earlier, uh, after the leaking, uh, blah, the leaking, the leaking, blah. oh my so, god, no, th there was a squeak. I got it right, and then there was a squeak. The <laughs> With a 2012 paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, or PNAS. <laughs> you always have to raise the eyebrow when you say PNAS. <laughs> You didn't have to say penis. You did that on purpose. Well, you caused this whole thing. If we're talking about gender bias, we might as well just ex explain <laughs> that this study comes was. from penis. <laughs> they actually. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's in the cutting room floor. 